Hello, beloved survivors. This is Autumn. Last year, I had the honor to write the foreword of a beautiful book about grief called Forget Prayers, Bring Cake. This book is written by Marissa Nathan Gerson. It is a ritual and a prayer. It is a guide to grieving written through the lens of a single woman. So it's not a guide to grieving for single people, but rather a guide to grieving um, from the lessons of singleness. And it is an incredible book. Back in September 2021, Marissa and I were hosted by Moon Palace Books, which is my local bookstore here in Minneapolis. They hosted us in a virtual event where we both got to read selections of the book and then talk with one another about grief and loss and yearning and wisdom. And it was so rich and so beautiful. And I just have the utmost respect and care for Marissa. Fortunately, the event was recorded. And so we are bringing you the audio from that event today as a bonus episode. So we hope you enjoy it. I'm going to kick us off with the reading of the Ford that I wrote um, for Marissa's amazing book. And I'll say too, I've actually never read this aloud before. You know, I mean, I think I've read it, I read it to myself. I read it in my head a lot when I was writing it, um, but I've not like read it for an audience. So this will be a new experience for me too. Um, so the Ford begins with this beautiful quote from Lucille Clifton's Blessing the Boats that says, it is your own lush self you hunger for. And here goes my introduction. I was dragged kicking and screaming into my divorce. I could not accept that my marriage was over. And for months, I resisted the reality that my partner of 16 years had already left the building. I couldn't accept a future I might face alone as a single mother of three children. I couldn't accept the present reality that I was already alone and had been for some time. I was trapped in fear-based loops. I lost 30 pounds in the span of three months because I could barely eat without vomiting. I was crying all the time. I resisted in every way possible this ending. Eventually, I shifted towards acceptance, and this, after some time, allowed for movement. I finally felt that I had completed an internal process. I look back at that time in my life, and I see it now as grief. Divorce taught me that grief is, for the most part, complicated and incomparable, as are the circumstances of our grief. I thought I had faced the worst grief imaginable, when I lost my fourth child halfway through my pregnancy and nearly died delivering them. 
it remains one of the hardest things I have faced in my life. But it was a pure loss imbued with the spiritual mystery of the universe. After my child died, I existed in the liminal space between life and death, part of me with them, and part of me still very much alive. The clarity of that grief was not the same as the grief of divorce, but it was grief nonetheless. Finally, understanding my divorce as a grief process gave me liberation. The beauty of the book you are about to read is not simply that it teaches you how to face grief alone, but also that it guides you into the power of aloneness. I was afraid to be alone, afraid to be single. I was afraid that no one else could or would ever hold me. I did not yet understand the truth that this book makes plain. To be alone is an invitation. Marissa Nathan Gerson offers us a vision of grief that is neither linear nor simplistic. And instead of a formula, she offers ritual. For humans, ritual is sustenance. Ritual is how we integrate the most important experiences of our lives so that when grief comes for us again, as it always does, we can say, yes, I remember you. And when traumatic memories resurface, as they always do, we can say, thank you for reminding me that I am alive. The grief work we are invited to do in this book is not only for those who are single, it is for those who understand that we take some of our most important journeys alone. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with that. And now I'm gonna no, hand it to you, Marissa. <laughs> I just I just recorded the audiobook and I've been trying to get I mean I was trying to figure out whether I could have you record that or like I was trying to figure out how to do it, but I've been reading that forward on repeat. So I was like, oh, it sounds so good <laughs> like coming from autumn. <laughs> no, you are great. Um, I'm so grateful for that forward for so many reasons. One, because your writing is so beautiful. And two, it really set the tone to make this a universal book because I, I had an idea in mind, not that it was originally intended just for single women, but more that it was the, the wisdom gleaned from being a single woman. So I appreciated that you sort of wrapped it into it, because I didn't do that. Um, so I'm mm. grateful for you for, for many reasons. It's been a pleasure um, and an honor to have you in this book. Thank so you. I'm just gonna read the author's note. So if, if you bought the book and when you buy the book, you'll get Autumn's voice and then my voice in this, in this exact, these are like the first pages. So we're just introducing that. Um, so my author's note, the quote at the beginning says, she had reached the abandoned field from Kate Chopin, The Awakening. <clears throat> when I was 22, I worked the register at a coffee house in Washington, DC. The barista I worked with most often was my friend from Addis Ababa. He schooled me on how to bring in enough tips, taught me how to honor my food, count my blessings, and be a good waitress. We became close. One day he didn't look well. I asked him what was wrong and he told me that his mother in Ethiopia had died that week and her death was making him physically ill. Why, I asked, I didn't understand yet. Because, he told me, in my country, we scream. In my country, I would yell and let this feeling out of me. I need to scream, I need to wail, but if I wail and scream here, the police are going to come. 
I cannot release this pain, so I am sick. We need to wail. We need to scream. And if we can't, we need to find some way to siphon out the pain. Because grief is everywhere. It is in our coffee poured by those who have suffered recent losses. It is on the news and in the subtext of our friends' Instagram feeds. Grief is as ever-present as sexuality, and it, too, requires a release, an orgasm for mourning, a pouring out of that which is contained in the body, ignored and not attended to. We are, as a culture, chronically grief-ridden, and we, I think here is those of us who are in the United States of America, but it's for everybody. The question is how to grieve, how to feel, how to mourn without blasting to smithereens, most of us don't have a script that allows us to release our grief like the one my friend was taught. And even if we do, we often cannot honor it within new cultural milieus, living within systems of social codes that preclude us from our origin practices. So many of us were never taught how to grieve, who to speak to, what to do, or when to quit. Sure, the Bible says to sow in tears and reap in gladness, but whose priest or rabbi or guru sat them down and slowly explained what grief is, why it must be honored, and how to grieve. Not mine, though a little bit. With no model, no clear set of instructions as to how to move through the treacheries of loss, I had questions. What does it mean to mourn properly? How much grief is too much grief? What if you call on your friends, but they don't want to comfort you anymore? What is allowed in the process of grieving who decides what is allowed? If we are not all following one set of rules, what is appropriate? Is there a wrong way to grieve? It took me four decades to learn how to grieve. It took me four decades to build practices into my life that allowed me to honor my grief, not just through ecstatic crying, but through caring for my body, for my home, and tending to my feelings. Grief is a practice. This book is a map. This book posits the idea that grief is not to be recovered from, but rather prepared for. It is not predictable in linear stages, but rather a wild storm to ride out, to learn to navigate individually before the next and the next and the next grief arrives. Grief is a fact of life. Where you see the word woman in this book, it signifies those who inhabit this role in their lives both cis and trans women, femme androgynous and non-binary folks, feminine of center and beyond. And where you see the word we, it is not meant to signify a common experience of race, class, and religion. Every person comes with their own layering of grief, culture, and oppression, or lack thereof. We refers to the collective, to all of the people on this planet, navigating loss, nuances and all. We need, I'm, I'm skipping around a little because I don't think the instructions are necessary. We need to grieve. We need to get out of our own way. We need to feel the weight of sadness poured over our lives before, during, and after 2020. And I feel like now we just have to add, and throughout 2021, <laughs> we need to do so because the joy and pleasure on the other side is the medicine of our times. We need to feel good to come hard, to dance and to laugh because that's the strength that lights the way. Because life is short, grief is bittersweet, 
and happiness comes from actually leaning, feeling, and falling into our misery. Hell yeah! <laughs> leaning and falling. <laughs> I'm just gonna hang out with you all the time with like the back. I like it. Um, so I don't know. Uh, I don't know if we're getting our question or person back in. So maybe we just jump I'm, in together. I can you hear me? Oh, you're you're. We have a hidden a hidden voice. It's um, awesome. Video won't come on. Um, but the audio works. So that's Perfect. that's really excellent. All that excellent. Um, yeah. First of all, it's great to hear both of you read those. I have read them, and it's like so. I got like chills listening to both of you read it. Um, so, but Marissa, so you you talk about the book, you know, sort of being this this roadmap. Um, do you want to talk about sort of how it came to be and and why it's relevant now? Yes, um, it came to be because I moved to New Orleans in two thousand. We give like New Orleans every time we say New Orleans, we all supposed to like scream and holler and send love because send love suffering. Yeah, so I moved to New Orleans. I think it's, it's two years ago, um, like a week ago, and my dad got sick a week after I got here and we didn't know he was sick and then he died. Um, and my move to new Orleans was one of those like throw caution to the wind, take a huge risk and go. And so I did that. And then it was like, I'm going to go through the hardest thing of my life with zero support network here. So the book was sort of me recording and navigating what it was that was nourishing and feeding me through that process and how I stayed afloat and how I, allowed myself to feel what I felt. Um, I think also it was sort of a collection of a lot of lessons from a long time of navigating loss before the loss of my father. And it's, it's relevant now in the, you know, I'm, I'm in a new stage of grief this week. I, I have never, I have never lived through a natural disaster before. Um, I've never been in like an earthquake state. I've never been in a flood. And while New Orleans is very, in some ways lucky, it's still, We've had this glimpse of what everyone talks about as their biggest fear, which is a city with no gas, a city with no electricity, a city with no food, um, and what it looks like and how it feels. And so I'm, you know, I'm very comfortable and privileged and also just witnessing those who, it's, it's a lot to see that interruption. So I'm learning new things about grief and I feel very humbled by this book because I'm like, hey, woman, take your own advice. <laughs> like, you, need to, you need to go read a book that you wrote because uh, it is it's it's a lot to it's a lot to witness what we're all here to witness. And I don't think yeah. that I don't think it's a problem to do so, but it is a lot. And we do need tools to get through it. Yeah. Um, we're kind of always writing to ourselves and for ourselves. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. I have an advice column that I wrote like many, many years ago. And I'm always embarrassed when I'm having a problem and I and I realize I wrote the answer to it like five years ago and the answer was so good. I'm like, why are you struggling? You knew. And I'm like, thank you, younger self, for all you once understood. Um, no, but this book is meant to be, you know, I come from a family that had a lot of grief from the inception. Um, my family was, most of my family members on my father's side were murdered by the state in uh, Poland. And... I came into this world knowing that there's like this impossibility of grieving what what like the fractured nature of being alive. And so I've I've been collecting tools just to cope with being alive. And I think we need them. I think that uh, I think Autumn offers tools. I think your whole family's offering tools. And I think there's a real need right now for more 
sort of methods for handling. I, I don't think we're in the worst time in the world. I just think we need more methods for living in this time that we're mm -hmm. in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is. Um, it is a an interesting um, moment in time. And and one of the things I really like about this book is that it looks at grief and loss in so many different forms, um, which I, um, I I really like. You know that it um, sort of uh, makes mention of that and, and talks about you know. It in all of those different forms it can take. And so Autumn and Marissa, you both have um, different experiences with grief and, and loss. And would you um, speak on it more and, and sort of maybe some of the, the parallels of, of your experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, maybe Autumn, you want to start? Sure. Yeah. It's It was interesting to like it was interesting, you know, when you asked me, Marissa, to write the forward, I think I had, um, I think I had a sense as to why, you know, you were asking me, but it came at a really interesting moment um, where I was, where I was like in the midst of a totally new and different kind of grief that I had not only not known about, but like hadn't ever expected that that kind of grief would even come for me because you know no one gets married like planning to get divorced right and so <laughs> and and you know and people don't talk about it people don't talk about what um people i think it, there's a bit of a taboo actually in our society even with the divorce rates as high as they are i think there's a real taboo around openly discussing um, what a nightmare it actually can be um, to live through one. And um, <clears throat> and so what was interesting for me was when I finally sat down to write the Ford, it was like, this was what was coming through me, you know, was needing to speak to the, this particular type of pain that I was experiencing. And I remember, you know, reading passages from your book and thinking, well, you know, like what Marissa is going through is like, for me, like the most unimaginable. It's the thing, you know, it's the thing that we all know is coming for us. But if we have like loving relationships with our parents, it's like, it is really terrifying and unimaginable. You know, the way that other folks I know have talked about losing their parents, they talk about it, it's like a black hole opens up in your life or like a void opens, you know? Um, and, but I think I, what I needed to kind of do was take myself out of, I, it was like catching myself in the moment of like grief comparison, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like, which is, I think you address this in the book, right? The tendency that people have to get like weirdly comparative and competitive with their grief experiences. I had to kind of catch myself in that and remind myself, yeah, that it's like, it's actually not comparable and nor does it need to be. And I can just speak from, from where I am at this moment in my life, you know, knowing that it is all, you know, like we're all sharing this path together and like the various forms of grief that each of us are experiencing do touch each other. Um, yeah, so I guess I would just start there and then I would love to hear a little bit from you, Marissa, about like the parallels that you've noticed along the way as our paths have kind of like you know, come in contact with each other. Maybe we can yeah. like, um, well, hand it back so and forth. I, I learned, I'm not even sure when, how, and why I learned of you. 
of you, the luminous being. Um, but there's, there's <laughs> there was something interesting about this book where it was like shrouded in uh, mindfulness from the from the very beginning. And I went to Naropa and I I did my master's in writing at this Buddhist school in Colorado that was, you know, strange and wonderful and transformative and you know, it's still like appropriated Tibetan Buddhism, but it taught me things that that broke me away from a lot of the methods of my sort of East Coast childhood that probably allowed for this book to come into creation. And my editor actually is a colleague from Naropa and my publisher is someone that he found through the mindfulness world. And so then when I saw more about you and was learning and listening and watching you, because Facebook is so weird, because I really was like, I shall now watch Autumn's life unfold in front of me. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, when I did that, I realized that, you know, you fit in, like, I was thinking a lot, like, who should we have write this forward? It would be so wonderful to have another voice. And we thought about a lot of different people. And I just came back to you, because you, I knew that you'd been through a loss, because you had posted about it. And I liked your voice. I liked your mindfulness. I, and when I say mindfulness, it's such like a, could be like a, a little bit of like a kitsch word. But when I say mindfulness, I mean that there was an, there was something about you and your life that seemed that it was serving towards this sort a quieter center. And that, that, that was, that was sort of what you worship is a quieter center, no matter what. And that's, I, so my friends are like, what? That's what you wanted, Marissa? Because I'm like loud and complicated, but I'm worshiping <laughs> the same. I am worshiping a quieter center. And uh, anyway, so your mindfulness was what attracted me to you. And I just want to tell you something that you don't realize, which is that the thing that I actually gave you off of this registry I found was the knife. I gave you a giant knife. I, so I, Autumn thinks that I gave her a um, a chime, but I gave you a massive knife. Oh and, my and God, I love that. Okay, so let me let me explain for the audience what you're referring to. Like, this is important. This is important in terms of what do we mean when we're talking about like grief processes and supporting each other. Okay, because this really yeah. was the first way that we met. Like, Marissa was following my work. Um, at some point during my divorce process, you know, I, like many people who are going through a really difficult divorce and needing to make really hard calls about things that you don't ever expect yourself having to make hard calls about, I found myself saying, you can have it all to my ex. <laughs> I love it. Right? I love it. <laughs> and then suddenly found myself not having a whole lot, right? Not having a lot of things. Um, and you know, there's registries for when you have a baby, there's registries for when you get married, but you know what there's not a registry for is when you get divorced, which is when you most need shit because you suddenly don't have things that your whole life is built around you having, right? And so I was like, what am I going to do? Well, I'm resourceful. So I decided to make my own registry for my divorce. I made a registry on Amazon. <laughs> and of course, of course, because I'm a leftist and all of my people are leftists, I immediately incurred like people coming on my comments being like, you shouldn't be using Amazon. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, <laughs> bitch, shut up. <laughs> right? Right now, you need to shut up. You can take your frustrations about Amazon to Jeff Bezos his very own self, because I'm going through a divorce right now and I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that. There's nowhere else I can do this or there's, there's no ethical place to do this, so stop. Anyway, 
So I put on, I put together this registry on Amazon and people, oh, so many people in my life, like got me things off the registry. And so many of them were people that were strangers to me, including Marissa, right? And because of the way things came in and because of the chaos of my, my life in that time, I wasn't really able to track who sent what to me. But the, so the thing that I thought, one of the gifts that had arrived in my life was something plus like a a crystal tree. And I thought that that's what Marissa sent me. So what Marissa is reminding me right now is actually Marissa sent me a giant sharp knife, <laughs> which is so perfect. It's so perfect because actually, you know, different types of grief that we go through guide us into different lessons in our lives, right? And this, the particular grief that I was experiencing, the grief of divorce was guiding me into lessons about, you know, boundaries, about like making a clean cut, right? So in, you know, in Tai Chi practice, this is one of the things that we learn, right? Is how to make a clean cut when we are um, separating ourselves, differentiating ourselves or setting boundaries or, or, or ending right <laughs> and for me so much of the you know so much of the challenge of that time in my life and frankly is still a challenge is making a clean cut and being able to say clearly no like this is mine that's yours you know and we are no longer connected in those ways um so i just <laughs> love knowing in this moment right now that it was the freaking knife that you sent me I couldn't write it in an email. I felt like, oh no, I didn't give you a crystal tree. I gave you like a weapon. Um, in my mind, in my, <laughs> for me, I was like looking through the registry and I was like, no question. I want to send this woman a massive knife. And it's really just a kitchen knife. And I think in my thoughts, it was like dual. It was supposed to be you know, this will nourish you for the cooking that you need to do. And then also I was like, I have this image of you with like wild hair and almost like naked with a knife being like, I am free and I am protected. <laughs> and I, like, yeah. I sent you. But the funny thing is, um, and I'll like, use that as a segue uh, to this book. Um, I'm going to just read two paragraphs that are completely connected. I'm going to tell you something you don't know, which I'm excited to tell you. Um, yeah, I love it. So our contemporary, this is from the intro. Our contemporary culture has no, y'all go this way so you can, so you our can see the beautiful cover as Marissa reads. Okay. <laughs> our contemporary <laughs> culture has no celebrated category, no financial incentive, no preset parties sanctioned for the woman who makes a life on her own, who lives alone, who cooks alone, who does it all without a partner. If feminism means equality and autonomy, why on earth is there no empowering economic and social system in place as there is for married couples to herald and celebrate a woman doing it all on her own? Um, Maybe this is because single women defy a longstanding social and economic order, an order that hinges on the unification of two families and their respective bank accounts for the added purpose of coming together and having sex in order to make heirs, this is like the saddest look at marriage, sorry guys, um, bound <laughs> legal, <laughs> and religious, legal and religious agreement. The single woman betrays the patriarchal economic and social order. And for that, and for being an emblem of aloneness, of the horrid possibility of loneliness, people fear her 
And I do believe people fear her, the solitary woman, just as they often fear the griever, an emblem of the suffering we so badly want to forget is coming. You know, it's funny, um, two things. One, I just realized whose book I'm holding, which is someone whose address I don't have, and I'm mailing it. It's the woman who wrote the rituals chapter with me. So that seems Aww, like apt for this. Um, beautiful. But I'll tell you that I didn't include it for whatever reason in the book, but I wrote a lot when I was writing the book about registries. And so it really feels amazing to hear you talk about that because when I moved to New Orleans, I bought a house and it was like a huge risk. I'm, I was very peripatetic. I had not lived anywhere for very long for years. I've lived in like 15 cities and it was terrifying for me to make a commitment of that magnitude. And that's sort mm -hmm. of how the book begins. But when I got here, I was like, wait, so I'm, I'm not like, it's sort of like very Carrie Bradshaw, but I, I've been to like <laughs> a thousand weddings. And I, and I, and it's so funny because my friends who have like the most kids and like had the most fancy wedding and I gave the most, they still don't quite register that there was a registry, but the registry, I made a registry for my move because I, I was like, I'm 30 at that time. I was 38. I think I, don't know, I was 37 or 38. And I was like, I don't know if, a, I don't know if I'll get married. And if I do fine, right. everyone, everyone else I know has had a lot of parties by now and a lot of presents. And I was like, I, I have an empty house and I need help. And I, you know, I, I, similar to what you were saying, I needed it. Like I was by myself doing this on my own. And the thing is, is like at the table I'm sitting at, a cousin helped me get, and the chair I'm sitting at, my friend's mom got. And it was such a blessing because I went through my father's death in a house filled with love that was yeah. sourced from all these people. And so registries, I like I was thinking about my parents and their wedding gifts. They still have them. My mom still has them. And those wedding gifts are not about like money and like, here, let us give you our silver. So forevermore you have a resource, but it was more <laughs> about, <laughs> it was more like, let me give you uh, this, this gift so that you know that we're with you in your marriage. And we know that, you know, that we're with you in your home. And all I could think was, why do I not get to, it wasn't like a wow, 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 poor me. I'm not angry. It was more just a I want to have the love of my community built into my house. And I think you were like, I want to have the love of my community built into my divorce. And what that has to do with grieving is that grieving sucks. Like we all are going through it at all times. And these little things that are, you know, delicious and comforting and methods that show us that people care that when we forget, they really matter and they really help people. And I think single women in particular, Many a single woman after 30 is going through an existential crisis of why didn't it happen for me? And I remember um, I heard Tori Peters talking and when she spoke of her book, uh, Detransition Baby, about how comfortable she felt when she was transitioning genders when she was with divorced women, because divorced women in particular had just had this like severance of their dreams and of what they thought life would look like and were starting over. And I don't think we're so scared of everyone's pain. All we had to do is douse it in just a little bit more presence and get like I think just a little more presence all for every. I mean that's what New Orleans just did in the storm. We were, there was a funny meme that's basically like people with no money have been Venmoing other people with no money and passing it around the city because there have been like hundreds of thousands of Venmo transactions this past two weeks, and not waiting for government help, not waiting for FEMA assistance, just digging each other out with love and care, and it's profound. And I think. These gestures that sound petty are profound either in survival moments, which is happening here, or in just getting through like the treacheries of emotional loss. Mm. 
I'll just tell you one story about that, that um, the Mosquito Supper Club is this very amazing restaurant in New Orleans and they serve like hyper-local seafood. And that hyper-local seafood comes from a part of Louisiana that just got completely decimated. And so rather than waiting, they were like, these are the people that have, have supplied the city of their shrimp, the restaurant of their food. They made their own fund. They made bayoufund.org and they raised over $250,000 in five days and gave each fisherman's family 10 grand because their houses were literally just sunken underwater. And wow. that to me, like gave me a model. I've been thinking a lot about anarchy and not in the way that we've been taught it as this dirty word, but as this beautiful concept of what do we do when the government doesn't work? And this week for two weeks, the city, like every restaurant in New Orleans had to thaw all of their food and give it all away. And there's just all these things. So this book is really, if we were to look at it in a nutshell, it's a book called How to Build a Community Even When You're Miserable. And I think New Orleans is like the biggest teacher I've ever had of what it means to look out for your community. What does it mean to raise $20,000 for your neighbors so they don't have to be evicted? What does it mean to take things into your hands? Or even I was teaching my students at Tulane that, um, and I'll stop preaching. I'm just enjoying talking about the subject because it's in my blood right now. Um, that there's um, a, there's a fund that people created for people who are undocumented immigrants in New Orleans because the government doesn't recognize their bodies and their needs for food and electricity. And um, like, you know, everybody can get this $500 check from the government because we've had no electricity except for them. And you start to see what happens when you dissolve the borders of what we're told is considered a viable life. And I've been, I just feel really humbled and and taught by this time and also very, very sad. I mean, there's layer, we have, if you walk outside right now in my street, it's been two weeks since this hurricane and it stinks of trash that's been rotting in the sun for two weeks. Yeah. There's trees everywhere and there's trash bags of debris everywhere and things we take for granted that like are parts of living in an urban life that we think will be there forever. When you lose it, you, you are, the fragility of our nature is, it's not yeah. the most horrible thing, but it requires a recalibration. And I think this book is about recalibrating. And I think your forward is also about the power of recalibration and that we, we do get to be reborn, like every week if we want to be. <laughs> um, well, so sort of on that, you know, talking about sort of these like collective moments of grief. And like you said earlier, how we're, we're all kind of in a constant state of that, especially, you know, after, yeah, climate disasters and, you know, state violence and, and murders and, um, you know, the pandemic and sort of these collective and, and nation state causes of grief, um, you know, like, and, and sort of with that, you know, like you said, the inequity of action that um, accompanies these events, like, could you maybe talk a little bit about that and, and sort of, you know, like how how do we heal? Do we heal? You know, what does that, that look like? And I feel like you've spoken to that a little bit, but if um, either of you want to sort of elaborate. Autumn, I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about like how you run the Allied Media Conference, correct? I, well, I've been a participant in the Allied Media Conference for many, many years. And I've, um, <clears throat> I used to be one of the organizers for the Healing Justice Practice Space. At the Bingo. That's what I that's what I was getting at. So I wondered if you could talk a little mm -hmm. bit about healing justice practice place and what that space and what that has to do with grieving in the space that you were in. Like you are, you have been a grief worker for a long time. So I wonder if you might want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I think 
<clears throat> well, first, I just want to, I guess I'll zoom out and just say that, you know, that healing justice itself is a political framework and, you know, a, an area of move, social justice and movement work that really understands that systemic oppression and intergenerational um, trauma is because these these systems have impacted us at such a, such a deep genetic and ancestral level, um, healing work, care work, safety work actually has to be at the center of justice work. And historically, many of our movements for social justice have ignored that as like one of the primary um, ways that we build a new world, right? Um, and so those of us who like operate within that framework, what, what we're sort of positing is like, if we have any hope of actually building a new world in the shell of the old, <laughs> um, that actually ha has to start from um, like returning to a sense of wholeness, which isn't the same as, um, <clears throat> you know, which isn't, which isn't being perfect, which isn't being with, in a community without harm. It's not being in a community where pain doesn't exist. It's about rather recognizing that part of our healing is um, contingent on like being in right relationship with our pain and grief. Like that's actually, you know, anyone who has experienced any kind of trauma in your life knows, especially if you've been on a journey around trying to heal your trauma, you know that part of that journey is about being in relationship with your trauma, right? Because like, what does trauma do? It ruptures you, it splits you. It lives over here where you can't see it. You can't experience it directly, but it's experiencing you and it's experiencing the world through your body, right? <laughs> and so part of healing trauma is being like, I'm gonna bring you back in, right? We're not gonna be split anymore. I'm gonna bring you back in and we're gonna figure this out together. And, um, and, and like, I think, and I think that this is one of the things that your book, Marissa, makes like, it's a beautiful, like, you know, map isn't even the right word for it. It's like a, a thinning globe with like topography on it. It's like, it lets us into how grief work gets us there, right? That like, um, whether that grief work is, I lost someone and I'm grieving them, like that's the trauma, or whether that grief work is, you know, my life has been ruptured in some way and I am grieving the, I'm grieving the thing that I believed to be because that's no longer that thing that I believed in or that, that future that I saw for myself is actually just gone now, right? And maybe it was never there. Maybe it was actually an illusion. Like that was certainly for me and I think for a lot of people who go through divorce, a big part of, you know, it's not, it's not, like in my, the way I experienced it wasn't even like, it wasn't like I, it wasn't just like I split up with my per person that I had been married to. It was like, I felt like the person I had been married to died. Right? <laughs> well, and, and the person someone, within you. And the person within the person me within who was married died. to that person died. And now we were, yeah. you know, there's yeah. someone else walking around in that person's body. I'm a different person. The thing that I thought was 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 our reality was actually kind of an illusion that we were both like upholding. You know, it was like my whole life, my whole worldview really had to shift. And but in order for me to like let that happen, I had to grieve the thing that was now dead. 
right? <laughs> I had to, yes. I had to yes. acknowledge and that it was now dead. Mm -hmm. And just like with any trauma, we have to be, we have to actually stand in relationship with it in order to grieve it. Yes, amen to that. Um, yeah, one of the things I wrote about in the book was the struggle I had with telling people my dad died and then them trying to make it cute and like put a bow on it. And I, yeah, but I find that also, I mean, what I what I hear you saying echoes back to what I think I completed at the beginning, <laughs> incompleted if that's a word, at the very beginning of the it is of now. This, um, talk. <laughs> I, I, um, in my family, I felt like we built a lot of narratives where we didn't admit that the things that happened happened. Like I really make a practice of saying, not like the Holocaust, which is the word that just sort of numbs everyone out, but saying the fact is that state-sanctioned murder of my family is actually what took place. And that that, rea that reality and like coming back to that isn't something I was taught to do. It's very taboo to admit that, to, to just touch it so much. And I think what you're talking about is going to the center of a community and saying, hey, let's not pretend that this horror didn't happen to you. Let's give us the tools to see each other and to begin. And I know that it's complicated. Like some people really cannot admit that they've been harmed for not, not for reasons that are like around weakness, but around there isn't enough community support to make that a healthy choice, right? Right. Like to, right. to sit into your and sink, sink into one's trauma and like really be like, okay, yes, I got, I saw that shooting or I experienced that rape or I, yes, my father is really dead. It requires this kind of fortification that is the profundity of your work. And I love, I, I, I like sort of smiled when you were talking about rupture and trauma because I've never heard, I'm always the one that's talking about it, but I've never heard someone else. And I was like, oh, I'm so happy to have you here and to have the language and I'm just so grateful. Um, there's a chapter in the book on compounded grief and I wanted just to echo what you were saying to read just a couple um, sentences about that. And it says, a lot of people experience grief and then more grief and then even more grief with no relief. Loss for so many is not just about the one occurring in this moment, but the many that preceded this moment, the many losses never mourned, never properly grieved, never given space or time or resources to be grieved, never laid to rest, which is where you come in with resources and support that aren't actually built into the system. Right. Um, this loss plus losses from the past may be aggravated by other deaths, other crimes, other blows to the nervous system, sometimes daily. This is compounded grief. When grief sits on grief and more grief, horror on horror, past and present, can leave people emotionally destabilized, highly anxious, and steadily unnerved, especially oh. when the horrors are ignored, racially motivated in current time, not just past, played down, erased by the society you live in, and then repeated in new forms. And when I was writing this, it was because I was thinking mostly about Katrina and New Orleans. And now that I'm in this again, one of the things I've noticed is that this grief is very similar to the grief of losing a parent in a, in a, in a short term. Um, like just like the, the, there's a nature of no one wants to talk about it with me. Like I went home to DC and it, people would ask me all these really intense questions like, is, is your house okay? How did you get out? But no one stayed around long enough for me to say, well, then all the electricity went out. Then the then the electric tower got blown into the Mississippi River. Then the roofs were ripped, ripped off. 
then the gas was no longer distributed. Then the restaurants had to defrost their food. Then the fridges rotted. Then the, you know, endless, endless details of, of the exact horror everyone wants to pretend isn't coming. And everyone's yeah. like, no, I don't tell me what it would look like when nature takes my city away. And right. so I've been, today is like the first day where I was like, wait, I have to grieve. I have to pay attention to this. But it's a very insidious cycle when there's something you're experiencing that no one else can witness. And, and it's not I an think accident. that's the power. You know, I mean, I think like one of the things that, you know, as you're lifting it up, it's like, uh, I mean, obviously a lot of my work, because I do a lot of political work that's around systems change, but you know, a lot of my work I'm looking at like, well, who is served by these patterns that we all find ourselves stuck in. And it's no accident that we are in patterns of persistent erasure of trauma and lack of capacity to grieve, right? Because grief is also transformative, right? So yes. if we're not grieving, we're also not transforming. So it serves, it serves the system as it is for us to stay really numbed out and to not have to really look at the things that you are calling people to look at in the work. Right. And then when I, but so then, you know, one of the, the emblems, like I'm always labeled as like really sensitive and especially at a party where I don't want to answer those questions. Like someone was like, you are just so sensitive because I was like brought to near tears when they were trying to box this experience into, did you get out? Is your house okay? You're safe, house is safe, great. And I was like, well, I'm connected to the restaurants I eat at. I'm, I'm connected to the fishermen that supply the fish I eat. I'm connected to all these pieces that are suffering. So I, I don't get to just like wipe myself clean. And I, you know, I used to live in a vacation town in New England and in the dead of winter, we would get these horrific storms, like really terrible nor'easters that would just take the tree. It would look similar to how it looks in New Orleans right now. And I always was just so blown away by how many men worked so very hard. It was always men there um, to, to take the trees away. And by the time the vacationers arrived, there was no evidence that there was labor or a storm. Mm. And in New Orleans, same thing. Like if you come next month, you're gonna get your shrimp. The city streets will be cleanish. Um, the, you know, everything will be functioning. Like currently just like weird little things make me like sort of shake in my boots. Like if there's a, a pull down or just to walk up the street where I go to the bayou, um, all of the lights, all the traffic lights don't work. And there's something very apocalyptic about your basic street lights just not working. And yeah. Anyway, the, the moral of the story is simply that community care and the grief rituals. I know that on Friday, this remarkable woman um, here in Angia is running something through the New Orleans Arts Center where she's going to do a community grief ritual. And okay. I know like in Pittsburgh, I'm close with this woman, uh, Kashira Halev, who was leading these like profound rituals for the Jewish community after over uh, like 10 people were murdered at by a white supremacist. And, what it means to those rituals. And I think coming from a family that instead of doing ritual of that kind was, was narrative building, I started to learn that the rich, like we must grieve or we're repeating, we're repeating harm. We must grieve so we don't perpetuate violence. We must grieve so we don't, cause I know I get angry, like really angry if I don't move it through and cry and let these yeah. things out. So this book gives these tools that I feel like you probably have a list of tools and could write like the, the sequel, like forget cake, bring autumn. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to throw glitter on the differentiation you made between narrative building versus ritual. And I, 
I hope you do even more writing about what you just said, because like that to me, just even noticing that, like what is the difference between we're building narratives that we share and repeat to each other versus we're actually processing something and moving yes, it through our bodies. Yes. Like, please yes. write about that. Well, and also similar to what you were saying, how the building of particular narratives permit people to not see things. Like I, I think it's very common especially in people with a particular type of power to build a narrative that allows them to otherwise, you know, to recenter the narrative so that they are the victim very quickly is a very dangerous game. And, you know, when you were saying earlier about comparative grief, you know, I was raised a lot in like a hierarchy of suffering. That was like how we talked about it. You know, there was like my grandmother who survived labor camps and she had it worse than the grandmother whose family got out in the 1800s, but none of them had it as bad as the concentration camp survivor. And like, just inside of that Jewish world. And then they used to compare like, well, what is slavery like versus the Holocaust like, and like all these verses rather than, right. whoa, everyone, everybody is experiencing this kind of loss that needs to be, we all need sewing, you know, we all need like spiritual sewing. And what does that look like? And I think that my guess is it's part of my life's work and part of your life's work. Uh, although I am curious more why you're such a good spiritual sewer. <laughs> <laughs> Take that. <laughs> I feel like well before I before I go I could go there but I also know I'm I know we're like we're short on time so I want to just make sure that we're not um running out the clock here. Are we okay, Andrea to yeah, if you, I, I figure, you know, if you want to speak on something, then we'll take audience questions and maybe, um, Marissa, you could see us out with the, a little reading at the end, perhaps, sure. if that sounds good, because I do want to leave time. I know we have one question in the chat. Um, that sounds great. So, yeah. Should yeah. We... Yeah. And I think I'll just say to the spirit, being a good spiritual sower, which I, all I can say is thank you for the compliment. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really, it's really like, it's very beautiful to have language attached to my work that I, that would not have occurred to me to use myself. And then to sort of, I think right now I'm just like, oh, I just want to sit with that as a phrase that you just <laughs> use to describe what I do. I just want to sit with it and ex just explore it inside myself, you know? I, I'm going to amend it though, to spiritual seamstress. I feel like that's a better sentence. My, you know, someone once told me that my work, she, she was trying to, it was like a professor from grad school and her professor friends were visiting New Orleans and she was trying to explain to them who I was. And she said, Marissa's work lives at the nexus of sex and death. And I was like, I love it. <laughs> like, I write love that it. on my business card. <laughs> At the nexus of sex and right. That's yeah. Awesome. Let's hear this audience question. All right. And if anyone <laughs> else has any other questions out there, please feel feel free to put them in the chat or the ask question um, button on your screen. So this is a question from James. Was struck by the note on fear of the griever, and all you need to do is dousing it with more presence wow have you both felt feared in your grieving process oh yes <laughs> oh yes i'll i'll just take this quickly first but then i want to pass it to you marissa because i feel like you you've probably done a lot more thinking about it 
for me, it's like, I would say both um, in my grief and losing my baby um, and also in the grief of divorce. I think that there is a little bit of, you know, it's with many life events, life events, I'll just put them in quotation marks. Um, it's very difficult for humans not to project their feelings about those about their own lives onto your life events, right? So same is true for like anyone who's ever gone through getting married has probably experienced this, that like everyone's experiencing your process of getting married through their own baggage that they bring to whatever, however they feel about it, you know? And, and I certainly experienced, like it was a very, it was, it was a very intense experience, particularly when I lost my baby to notice who was able to interact with my grief as my grief versus who had to filter whatever they were saying or doing through the lens of like, um, you know, oftentimes very transparently, like I'm freaking out about the fact that this happened to you, you know? Um, and because I was in, you know, grief can clarify you. It erases a lot of filters that many of us walk through the world with, right? So, yes. I mean, yes. especially for me in the first few weeks and months after I lost my baby, I was like, I literally don't care about um, niceties or politeness or making anyone else around me comfortable or not. So if someone, especially like in the first two weeks, if someone came into my house and they were performatively coming into my house to support me, and it was clear to me based on the energy that they were bringing that they wanted affirmation for that, I literally just ignored them. I would act like they weren't there because I was like, my precious energy that's holding my baby's spirit all around me right now cannot be drained towards whatever you are bringing and whatever performance is happening and whatever like whatever you're needing to get out of being here for me <laughs> right so it made me like very i got really kind of cutthroat in a way that i'm grateful for now because now like you know some of the boundary lessons that some of the some of the boundaries that come more naturally to me now it's like that those molds were set inside of those first few months after losing my baby yeah. um and i would say very similar processes around my divorce you know i mean like there you know i often found that it's like you couldn't really talk to a lot there are a lot of married people that i couldn't talk to about my divorce because they found it unbearable it's they found it's it their unbearable. worst nightmare it's their worst nightmare it's their worst <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. When I think also like drawing those boundaries, like the thing that's really scary, at least was for me, is that drawing those boundaries is taboo. Right. Like if you're like, hey, you know, my, I feel like somebody's mother probably was like, you're supposed to be nice to that woman. She's here to take care of you. Be nice, Autumn. And like there's this part of you that I, I think that that was the, for me one of the scariest parts when my dad died was, okay, there's something. It wasn't just the pain, it was something very remarkable happening like on some energy level that I don't understand that I wanted really to protect that process. And when anybody came close to messing with that, that's when I became like this ferocious mother in the wild guarding this energy that I needed to be careful with. And, and I, you know, I do think there's something to be said for those moments that we, we would call a woman a bitch perhaps when actually it's someone protecting. And like, you were not like, you said all that, but you were really just protecting something within you that, that you, you didn't have the space not to do so. And I, um, I just want to read from how to be the grief support for a second. Um, and to answer that question, I've always been not so much like feared, like feared. I, 
I'm so preemptive because I'm like a high intuitive person, like not high, I'm a high being. No, I'm very intuitive. And so I'm always aware of their fear, if that makes any sense. So like I talked to someone this week about she, like she's visiting New Orleans and she said, oh, something's just not quite right here. And when she said that, what I heard was this woman's really frightened to admit that this city just got ripped to shreds by a wind over 100 miles an hour. Or when someone is clipping me and not able to hold my story, what I hear is that they're afraid of the rest of it. And so what mm. I do often is package myself smaller so that their fear doesn't impact me, but I end up meeting them basically where they are. It's very complicated. Like, cause if I open more then I am still confronted with their fear, if I don't open, I feel their fear. So we, wow. I, I think I wrote this book in some ways to beg people to start to face their fear so that we can take care of each other. Because if I'm afraid of you, Autumn, when you're in pain, then I can't do diddly to help you. So I just want to give just like a little nugget. Especially of, if the so pain how, makes me so raw that I know you are afraid. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think people don't even, when you don't know yourself, which at times none of us do and other times we do, when you don't know yourself, you might not even realize that you're siphoning from the person who's strong in the room. And that person probably came over partially to be there for you, but partially because she's like, I want to see Autumn be strong. Here, give me like, let me drink of that. And you're like, no. Not today, mate. Um, all right. So one, just pick how to be how to be the grief support. Honor your boundaries and be realistic about where you are. So the irony is people are always like, oh, let me go take care of Autumn. But that woman that day probably needed to talk with herself. I'm not ready yet. So if you are mourning deeply one day and someone asks you to be their grief support, nicely say no. No is better than drama. No is better than an explosion. No is love. Always when saying no to a griever, however, never just say no. Offer an alternate option. I want to be there for you, but sadly I can't. Don't end there. Add, does next Tuesday work? Give them a sense that there's more support coming. They don't mm. need too much info. Just a sign that you are there, that you love them, that they aren't alone in this blustery world. And they'll just give like a quick listen, do not project ask them before asking if that makes sense so instead of saying yo how did they die say are you comfortable talking about death like when people ask me oh how did you get out of that hurricane i was tra i was traumatized this was a scary situation even though i'm okay it was terrifying ask me are you comfortable talking about what happened mm -hmm. during the hurricane mm -hmm. then i know you want to listen to my story not tell me what the story is don't tell people Ooh. what the story is um girl and then one more is like ask before you touch and ask before you pray because both of those things could be triggering. So many people, especially something like a miscarriage or um, a rape or any, even for me with my father dying in front of me, you, you, it's best to ask someone, are you comfortable with a hug? And I know a lot of people when you say no, get mean and you've got to just be like, okay, can I sit beside you or whatever, but give people permission to be touched and also to be prayed for. Because some people prayers triggering if they were abused in their in their religion. So we don't just openly pray out loud in their face. We say, "Is this would this be comforting to you?" And I think that we want to centralize the griever and centralize that person and start to pay attention to what we're afraid of before we walk into the room. Because we are all full of fear. Mm, 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 mm. Mm. Thank you both. I didn't know if my sound was going to come on. I've had, sorry, I've had to be up this whole time. Um, I would like try to hit a button and it would just, 
decide to be you're doing great so <laughs> i'm glad the sound is back um it doesn't look like we have any more questions i do want to give everyone just kind of like one one last minute to get any um any last questions that you have in there um <laughs> I, I love this comment um I, <laughs> um well, and, and if we don't, if no one in the audience has anything else to add, um, I, I know we are a little bit over time. I don't know, Marissa, if you still wanted to kind of like end us on. No, I'm um, I'm okay to, I feel good about this conversation. I think I want to end with being like, Autumn Brown is amazing. And we're so grateful. Marissa Nathan Brown is amazing. This is so I think we, we should just make a musical number. It's like, yes. we're gonna solve your trauma. It's gonna be better. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready to like cool. come to New Orleans for us to like have a music writing session if that's something that you need. Oh, I'm ready. So. I'm ready. And then we're gonna write an essay. You and I are gonna write an essay about power of registries. Um, that's uh, what I'm yeah, the album let's coming do soon. It. Yeah, <laughs> album registries and whatever comes after that. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this project, Marissa. And I'm also just grateful for all the folks who showed up tonight. Um, I do think it's like. Uh, one of the things I think is so special about this book is that like, it's one of those things that I think only appears niche because people think that grief work is niche, but actually it really is so universal and so for everyone. So I'm glad to see Grace Harrington is going to force everyone in their life to read it as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you.